This podcast is brought to you by Scribe, a financial content agency. Just because your financial company and what you do is complex doesn't mean your content marketing has to be. Scribe produces blogs, articles, website and product copy, ebooks, pitch decks, and white papers for everyone from late stage fintech startups to the world's biggest banks and financial brands. Visit us at the Scribe Online. That's www.thescri.be. This is Stream It or Leave It. I like it a lot. Looking for something to watch? You have my undivided attention. We break down the best of streaming TV. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So you can stop scrolling and press play. We talk, we hook up, I smoke them up, we watch TV. It's great. Uh, Tune in each week for our take. That's what I do. I drink and I know things. And now, action. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. And don't call me Shirley. Excellent. Welcome to Stream It or Leave It. I am your host and your getaway driver for today, Shindy. And let me introduce you to my compadres. Today's crooked capitalist, Matt, and generic square jaw G-man, Jeff. We are film and TV buffs, writers, journalists, and critics who spend every minute of our waking hours on all of the TV streaming platforms. And so this show is in two parts. Part one is a no-spoiler zone, where we'll give you our general first impressions and relate it to other films. And then we'll give you a spoiler alert warning before we head into part two, which is our deep dive. Along the way, we'll talk about our faves and hangups and what else we are watching. And best of all, we'll tell you whether to stream it or leave it. And so this week's pick is No Sudden Move, which is on HBO Max. According to IMDb, it is about a group of criminals who are brought together under mysterious circumstances and who have to work together to uncover what's really going on when their simple job goes completely sideways. This could be also a group of gangsters, cops, and mistresses who go from their asses to their elbows trying to one-up each other, all in the name of cars and capital secrets in 1950s Detroit. But why? And so we usually have, you know, picks among the three of us every week. And so this week's pick was Matt's pick. So tell us, please, why did you pick No Sudden Move? Well, it's been a pretty slow year for films so far. So when the man behind the Oceans trilogy kind of casually drops a shiny heist film exclusively on streaming, I think that's an event for us and we need to check it out. He's done smaller movies for Netflix and HBO in the past, but this is more your kind of popcorn movie. And unlike, you know, Roma and The Irishman, there is no cinema distribution here. So this might be the future in a way, getting people like Steve Soderbergh releasing a big movie straight to streaming. On top of it, it has a huge cast and great word of mouth. So I thought it was worth checking out. I'll hold my judgment for a second. You guys go first. (laughs) Tell me what you thought of my pick. Yeah, sure. So... I think, you know, first impressions, I will let Jeff go first. And also, actually, this week we're going to do a little something extra because obviously Steven Soderbergh has a huge canon of work, huge filmography. He's director, writer, producer, whatever. And so in addition to our general impressions, we're going to pick our favorite Soderbergh films. So Jeff, go first. So lots of characters, a really great cast, of course, but lots of characters can sometimes mean some opacity in the plot, you know, and getting things moving. And also, you know, the downside of that, having all of them introduced so rapidly, you sort of risk, you know, 
not being able to find somebody to be sympathetic about. So that was kind of an early problem. I enjoyed it overall, but I don't know. You know, it was it was tough to get through a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. I will let Matt go last because this was his pick. And Jeff, what's your favorite Soderbergh film? My pick of Steven Soderbergh movies is probably Solaris. It's kind of a slow mover, but it's so it's so strange. And I just really, I think it's a remake of a mm-hmm, 60s movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I really enjoyed the remake. But yeah, I just like the, I like the feel of that movie. The vibe is just very chilling and, and strange. That's a, that's a throwback. I'd have to go back and watch that one. I don't remember Solaris so much. It's a really good the one. title? Good yeah. Pick. Cool. So general first impressions on my part for this movie. I read nothing about it before I watched it. I saw it you know, kind of hanging out at the top banner of the HBO Max app for a while, and I sort of just ignored it. <laughs> Not sure why. Me too. So when Matt selected it, I was like, cool, let's check it out. So read nothing about it, knew no background. I found it to be sort of a yawn, bit complex to get through. I will tell you guys what I kind of felt like it was like watching it was it had some weird sort of like true detective season three vibes. Weird language, sort of everybody intermingling or subplots and plots mingling with each other without really any substance or, like, understanding why. Like, it was a sort of muddled together. No one really cared anymore who was doing what. At least I didn't as an audience member. And so, I don't know. It just... Maybe for me, some of the things fell flat. Like, I think they were ambitious to try to tie a lot of different things and characters and plots together. And for me, it just didn't work out in the end. But that's my general impression. However, it wasn't, I mean, there were a couple of nuggets that I really did enjoy and, you know, where things were moving along for me, which I'll explain after the spoiler alert. But obviously for me, Soderbergh, I love him, always have. My faves from him are still Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is from 1989. That's a major throwback. You'll notice, and when I was looking in the credits of this film, Soderbergh works a lot with the same actors over and over again. He works with George Clooney a lot. He works with Miranda Richardson, who was actually in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, but apparently she has a role in this film, and I couldn't pick her out. Couldn't find where she was. And then also my other fave from him is Aaron Brockovich. Of course, we all know and love that one. Starring Julia Roberts, playing the eponymous title there. But I think in terms of like uh, directing, those were just my favorites from him. Really impressive work. But Matt, what uh, general first impressions and your favorite Soderbergh pick? Well, I'll... As far as past work, I mean, I'm not the biggest connoisseur of Soderbergh. He's done so much work. But for me, my favorite is Out of Sight. Uh, it's also a throwback. I think it's 1998. Mm-hmm. George Clooney, J-Lo, before she became unbearable, uh, the peak of her career. <laughs> that was uh, when she was me. Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> yeah, and she, in her career, was looking really bright. And I get really, I really resent that she decided she'd rather be a pop star than carry on this trajectory that she was building. She had good momentum then. And Out of Sight is a film that launched A Thousand Capers for Steven Soderbergh. And for me, it's still the best. I did not like the Oceans trilogy. And shout out to The Informant, which is a very underwatched Soderbergh film, which has similar themes to No Sudden Moves as well. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, That's another one I'd have to, like, go back in the record pile. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of my sideways recommendation here. Cool. As far as this movie, I mean... 
for most of it, or at least half of it, it was just, it felt, to me, it was an absolute treat. You know, you just felt like you were in very capable hands. It looked beautiful. The acting was superb. The pacing for most of the movie was really great. You have this mystery bubbling away that you're interested in peeling the layers off. But at the same time, the plot is moving well and with a good pace. The cinematography to me was really interesting. It was all very elegant and compelling. But then in the final act, as the reveals kept coming, there was just too many twists for me. They brought in some really interesting and very worthy themes, and we will talk about those in more detail, but it didn't quite fit together. It felt like a little too much. And yeah, in the heist movies that has too many too many twists and that are hard to see, it kind of feels a little frustrating. It just ended mm. up being a little much for me. Very interesting. So now is where we can definitely talk about all that. So here's your spoiler alert, guys. For those of you listeners who have not seen No Sudden Move, now is your chance to go and watch it and then come back when you're ready to discuss and see if you agree with me, Matt, and Jeff. So now we're going to do our deep dive into this film. We've got some topics to really unpack, just like the film, which was I don't even know if it's unpackable. I feel like I'd be unpacking for a year. (laughs) I'm still unpacking. Yeah, I know. I'm still unpacking. Like, what was happening? And actually, (laughs) if you guys, obviously you wouldn't know this, but even before we started recording today's show, I had to ask like whether one character was two different people or the same person. So (laughs) (laughs) not a good sign. Yeah, not a good sign for me. And I'm generally pretty, you know, with it with these kind of like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, complex type films. Oh, wow. That that is a complex (laughs) one. I love that one, but I feel like I need to watch it nine more times to start getting it. If you got that, you're you're a better watcher than I am. It's amazing. I don't know. It's kind of, yeah. There's like Tenet. It's like, I sort of got it. (laughs) Had to, like, watch it backwards to get it? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, so let's talk about the plot. Well, there's a lot going on. And so (laughs) in the first bit, we know that there's some criminals that have been brought together to do something, to steal a document. We know that there's, like, a man having an affair with his co-worker. Then it just sort of bubbles around and goes into all sorts of places. So I don't know. I had to watch this film with subtitles just so I could get a hold of like all the characters' names and what was going on. And I'm wondering what you guys thought. Like, at what point did you think, okay, this is great. And then what was the moment for you where, or if that moment even happened? What was a moment for you where you were like, I don't know what's going on? <laughs> so I'll start with uh, Matt. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was you don't know what's going on, right? And then you're supposed to learn with the character, which is an interesting way of doing things. But in this time, it was just too frustrating because the, the characters knew more than you knew in, in this one. Don Cheeto's lead, he knows more what's going on. And that's part of the interest is finding out where is this guy come from? Why is he... So so ahead of the game and what's going on in his mind. So that's really cool. But then once he gets to, there's this guy, but it's not, it's not him. It's a guy above. Oh, no, no, it's not him. It's a guy above him. Mm-hmm. And then and he has this whole wide-ranging conspiracy, which brings in, you know, social justice, the environment, you know, industrial secrets. And it's all delivered in one expositional monologue at the end. It kind of felt... It was hard to keep up. It was hard to to stay on top of it. And the fact that they needed a, like an expositional monologue at the end kind of 
makes it feel like it was jammed in. And I appreciate that it kept the running time short, but it was just I just don't think there was enough running time to get into all these things. I like twists when you when you have a chance of seeing them coming. When you don't have a chance of working it out, then you just become a passenger. And that's mm-hmm. the time when it got frustrated for me. Very interesting. You know, it's when you say that the running time was kept short, I feel like it could have been cut even more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'm thinking of the scene when Don Cheadle goes to pick up his suitcase. I feel like that, in hindsight, was that scene really necessary? I mean, we know that he got out of jail, but then... I, eh. I think it is. I think it was good character. For me, I thought it was good character building. It seemed, you know, it does give you a little bit of the human side of this guy because his drive is to get out of town, survive, and start his life again. So it helps mm-hmm. to know that he has this human side. He has someone he's in love with. Sounds like maybe he has a kid with this person. And then in his mm-hmm. conversation with the dad, they get into the point of the authorities leveling black neighborhoods to put in highways, which is kind of one of the plot points that comes out at the end. So this is them setting that up a little bit. They, I think they discuss how some neighborhoods are just getting wiped out. And mm-hmm. that's where the cars come in at the end because... You know, neighborhoods were leveled to put in highways. And then you've got your link to the car industry in Detroit all over again. Specifically, one neighborhood in Detroit called Black Bottom was undergoing this change at the time. Super interesting. But I think Jeff understood the plot better. So Jeff can explain the plot because I definitely didn't quite get it. I don't mind some of that opacity. Like, I I don't watch movies the same way as I used to. I, I sort of used to just take that sort of face value and the character was who they were and this kind of thing, you know. Today, I watch characters more for what they represent, like ideologically, than anything else. Because I feel like directors are intentionally putting these people in these specific roles. The writer is trying to say something. And sometimes they end up saying something that they're not trying to say, which is super interesting and a whole nother topic. But this, like, one of the things that I really like about movies like this that I do appreciate is this sort of fog of war concept, which is like, Mm. I copied a definition of it. It's the uncertainty in situational awareness experienced by participants in military operations, or in this case, a blackmail operation. So we're kind of along for the ride there. We don't, all of the pieces that are getting dropped in sort of almost like a mystery fashion that, you know, everybody sort of seems duplicitous. You don't know, like, Brendan Fraser's character, to me, was one of the best ones because he's so weird mm. and dark and menacing, and he has this weird yeah. undercurrent to his personality that's very, like, menacing. And I love that. I love that sort of, like, unknown, you know, sort of uh, ghost-in-the-machine quality about this guy. So, yeah, I thought the plot was difficult to understand and it unfolded slowly in a way but also i kind of enjoy that too did you feel that it was unfolded gracefully or like um sort of staccato you know i'm curious because for me it's almost like in in old 50s or 40s movies that are, are of this type Mm-hmm. You know, they used to talk sort of like, ba-ba, 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 you know, <laughs> like there was, this, there was this tap dance going on. Where's the envelope, like, Deborah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get yeah. the gun there. 
yeah. Without doing that, it kind of like, I don't know, it kind of does that without doing it. It's sort of interesting. I don't know. I don't even know if that's intentional. Probably not, but... It's but. it's uh, interesting that you mentioned that because obviously I think they, Steve Soderbergh was trying to evoke that feel of 1950s mm-hmm. cinema. And so, you know, I think it's a good time to talk about cinematography because yeah. there's a reason I look like a fish today on, on today's show with this <laughs> ridiculous fish eye lens, which for some reason my dad had from old school days. Um <laughs> But it's like, because even without reading any blogs or knowing anything about this film, I noticed it. And at first I thought I was crazy because I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? There's a weird fisheye lens in this movie. And it's very apparent in some scenes where, you know, the corners are darkened and things are in focus. And Mm -hmm. I remember in a previous show, Matt, you had talked about how some directors are using this weird you know, almost like a bouquet or portrait type style filming where things in the background are, are fuzzy or blurry and the main I'm characters in focus. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and so... And I was the only one who noticed that one, so I'm glad that I, this one, uh, <laughs> other people are along yeah. for the ride. <laughs> so it's interesting because did you notice or how apparent was this fisheye? It's become a big topic and now that I've, that I've seen some blogs and discussion on this, paying homage to the 50s movies with these like wide panning shots. I don't know if you guys noticed that too, but that was one thing I think in older movies when before they had all these effects, they would just go from one character to the other in a slow, wide pan. So that I noticed as well. So what did your take on that, Matt, on on the you know cinematography aspect of this film? I mean, I like it. I, I'm not convinced that it had the effect that he wanted to have. I don't think the fisheye makes it look vintage. Uh, and I'm... I'm thinking that I also read that that's what he was trying to get. He was trying to get a claustrophobic feel, which does give it a little bit. And a vintage feel, which I don't think it necessarily does. It does look odd. But to me, it just it was just interesting. It just felt fresh. As soon as I saw the camera pan, mm-hmm. that's when you can really feel the effect. I thought, wow, okay, this is cool. I'm interested to see why he's doing this and what it feels like. And I thought it was a worthy experiment, but I don't think it added a whole lot. The only thing I can think of is maybe, I mean, I'm pro- I might be tripping here, maybe because you're watching this at home on a flat screen by making the edges of the screen curved, maybe it's mimicking an old-fashioned TV. Mm. But I don't know. But that's just something I was thinking about. But I'm not convinced it did that because when it's pans, it just looks weird. But I don't know. Do you guys think there's maybe something to that or am I tripping? I like that idea of, of the old-fashioned television set i think that that is uh really uh insightful actually it reminded me of this burt lancaster movie and who else is in it tony curtis and it's called the sweet smell of success i don't know if you guys have ever seen that no that's a throwback it's a great movie it's from 1957 it's amazing and way ahead of its time but it reminded me of some shots like these panning shots with the sort of curved edge, you know, the fisheye edge. Yeah, to me, it was a little bit distracting, but I read something where the intention behind, or somebody had had a sort of surmise that the attention, the intention behind that was to not let you forget that you're watching a movie. And, mm. you know, because it's kind of a, got a historical backdrop. It's kind of a true story in, you know, the in the larger 
you know, the larger story behind it is truthful and historical. But the characters, you know, the specific characters, it's not a true story. So it's sort of like, that's what makes me focus even more on what the characters represent ideologically rather than as human beings, you know, actual human beings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Talking about characters, you know, just based on what you said, that is a, that's a, a good point because it had that sort of realistic feel, you know, it felt like these people were real people. Yeah. Especially when they roll that kind of factoid at the very end right. where they talk about, you know, they summary. And I thought that was weird because then I thought, did I miss something in the beginning? Where it's like based on a true story or based on right. actual figures. Because in the final piece where they have that factoid, they say it's almost like a fragment, like a sentence fragment. It says later, comma. Anyway, so speaking on characters, I actually think we can do a deeper dive into the cast. Obviously, we have a star-studded cast here. So much so that I wonder if it overwhelmed or maybe, you know, it, it... complimented how the film went for a lot of people. So I will let Matt go first and talk about his favorite characters and, you know, whether there was appropriate casting for some of these characters. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought Don Cheadle was fantastic. It's an obvious pick. He's the lead, but I just watched him in Space Jam 2, which was a terrible, (laughs) yeah. It's a big week for Don Cheadle. Space Jam 2 was a much, much bigger movie. It was awful. But he actually gives a really committed performance on that one, to be fair. But uh, yeah, he, he's a villain there. And this one, I thought it was just a tailor-made role for him. I think he carried it really, really well. He gave a lot of pathos to the, to the character. And it was not the kind of character that we often see leading a movie. So that was really interesting. But I thought, yeah, Brendan Fraser... Always a little odd to see him these days, you know, from Brendan Fraser from The Mummy looking a little mm-hmm. a little bigger and, you know, and older. <laughs> he was really good, too. Uh, I always like seeing John Hamm, but I thought his character was underwritten. Uh, there's so many. And, yeah, and uh, just a little one for me was uh, Bill Duke, who played one of the gangsters. He's a, yeah, me too. a real throwback. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Jeff, any ideas on, or were you surprised or impressed by any particular cast members and characters? Hmm. I, uh, as I said earlier, I really liked Brendan. My two favorite characters, well, okay, my top three were, hmm. of course, Don Cheadle, but like right up there as as supporting actors, I thought Brendan Fraser and Bill Duke did a crazy good job. And I just like their vibe. I like this sort of like, they're almost the same, they're almost counterparts, aren't they? They they're sort of have this menacing undertone to both of them. I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than that, but I, I really enjoyed. It's like, it's like for those you, you don't even need a backstory to them. You just see them act and say yeah. a couple of things, and you get it straight away. And that's what's so fascinating. Yeah, I love them. So yeah, that was those are my picks. <laughs> I agree with you guys. I thought Don Cheadle and Kurt Goins's role. I thought he nailed the accent. I thought it, you know, it was an interesting pairing to see him with Benicio Del Toro. Totally. But I think they were both excellent. I agree with Matt that John Hamm's role as Detective Finney was a bit, I don't know, I think his casting was a bit too big for this role because the role mm-hmm. is sort of like lackluster. I mean, <laughs> I feel like anybody could have played Everybody wants role. to work with Soderbergh, so even the small roles are going to get a John True. Hamm, you know. 
Yeah, true. And then David Harbour as Matt Wirtz. He's like the actor of the moment, I guess. A lot of people love him from Stranger Things, but he played that kind of cowardly, (laughs) good-for-nothing character really well, which was a little scary for me because you wanted to hate him because he's so just... Ugh, like, you know, just weak. one of those guys who you want to punch. Yeah, like meek. You want to punch him in the face kind of guy. Um, no, so, he, he did it well. You know, you're right. He made you feel, yeah. uh, he was came across sympathetic and he is, he's mm-hmm. getting some good roles. He's doing well. I mean, even the, the very minor roles were played by fairly, like, somewhat stars like Kieran Culkin yeah. was in this. That was a surprise to see him. Yeah. And should we mention the, the cameo? I think it's time. I think we've warned people. <laughs> I think we're, we're, yeah, we're entitled exactly. to that. <laughs> yeah. So Matt, I'll let you do that because you know, Matt. <laughs> well, my former neighbor, Matt Damon was the, uh, made a surprise cameo, which was, which is a, a great little surprise because you've got such a deep cast and then you can pull out a Matt Damon for the final twist. That was that was fun, I thought, you know. I have a personal history with Matt Damon. I once interviewed him while he was jogging through South Beach, which was a, a mm. highlight of my early American career. That aside, yeah, I, so he came in at a time when I was getting a little frustrated with the story and he was responsible for the big expositional monologue at the end, which I didn't quite buy. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's becoming a fun thing for Matt Damon. He had an uncredited cameo in Thor Ragnarok. He did the same in uh, Interstellar, which was another big surprise. Yes. And it's fun when people do that. It's it's fun. But I don't... Seeing him playing the man, the establishment, the, the capitalist kind of villain, it makes me feel old. And I'm, I didn't totally buy it. Yeah. I don't know if it makes me feel old as much as it's just, like, weird. <laughs> but, yes, he's playing the same character in most of these cameos, right? Like, he's the one who delivers the, the well, hold up, wait a minute, kind of character. And he's mm. like, this is the way, and this is, and I am the man. <laughs> and it's a little odd because, yeah, it reminds me of, of those long kind of, even in Interstellar, he had that kind of, like, weird... He's, he's like the person who sort of makes people shift in their focus toward the movie, which is odd. But, yeah, I agree. Well, it, it's a little showy, and I think when you're coming to the final act, you kind of don't want to take away from the story. It kind of takes you out of the story a little bit. I know mm-hmm. Interstellar, when you see Matt Damon, you go, whoa, it's Matt Damon. I didn't even know he was in this movie. <laughs> and you're taking out of the story for a second, and then it's, yeah. just, it's just odd. It wasn't as bad in this one, but it was... It had to give me that feeling. Uh, Jeff, what, what did you think? Yeah, with Matt Damon, you, you really have to look at him, his character, as as exposition. <laughs> He's yeah. not... He comes out of nowhere. He, he gives this great big monologue. But in the scheme of, like, 50s movies, you have that, you know? So if he's sort of trying to do an homage to this type of, of film, you know, as a throwback, like... Maybe that's sort of, you know, his replication, you know, Soderbergh's replication of of this sort of like monologue that happens in a lot of those movies, you know, where where the the power character is usually in the old ones, you know, the power character is supposed to be some like hero type character. But in this one, it's the capitalist, 
you know, uh, sort of demagogic <laughs> villain. Yeah, I, I get it. Strong, strong-handed capitalist. I do agree that there were monologues back in the day with some of these '50s films, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it was so much like an about-face character, where it's like, mm-hmm. eh, this cameo person who's delivering um, almost. Yeah, like they a didn't shift. usually show up out of nowhere. Yeah. That's true. Exactly, but I do know yeah. what you mean when you're talking about the monologues. So, that aside, yeah. we can talk about our favorite things about this film and our hangups. So I'll go first with faves. I did like some things about this film. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously it was nice to see Brendan Fraser. I like him a lot. He's had a very interesting career. And, you know, Jeff, going on what you said about how he plays these dark roles, since The Mummy, it's different to see him in this kind of role. But he also played a similar character in The Affair. I don't know if you guys watched that show on Showtime, Mm -mm. The Affair. Excellent. I don't watch it, but I just remember there being a fuss about, whoa, is that Brendan Fraser? Yeah, so in The Affair, he shows up. He's also kind of that dark, menacing character. He's a villain, and so it was nice to see him in that role, and I like the work that he's doing now rather than being, like, America's hero, right? I think it's more nuanced, it's complex for him, but it, it was nice to see him in this role, even though it was a fairly, I don't know if it was uh, minor, but significant. But it's an interesting contrast, right? When actresses age out of playing the hero-type character, it becomes really tricky for them. For male actors, they get into these really interesting roles of anti-heroes mm-hmm. and compromised characters and bringing gravitas to roles. But uh, And he's mm-hmm. definitely doing that. Mm-hmm. I would have to look back and see which female actors, because I I don't know if I totally agree with that statement, because I think there are a lot of female actresses who, as they are getting older in their career, they are managing to find really interesting, challenging roles. And it's Mm -hmm. it's becoming, you know, after Me Too and everything, their opportunities are a lot more now. So it's getting better. Yeah, it's getting better. So I'm going to try to dig up some characters like that. Obviously, there's like the male streets, but then Michelle Pfeiffer is in a new movie coming out and then you have like diane lane and then you've got like you know jane fonda and so i'll I'll try to think of some more maybe for a future show Mm -hmm. my other favorite was when ray liotta was being smushed into the trunk (laughs) i felt like that was a nice little homage to goodfellas especially when he's like Watch the rib. Because I didn't in, catch that. I didn't either. That was a great, great spot. Yeah, when Goodfellas, they murder the guy, stuff him in the trunk, and when they take him out, Joe Pesci's like, here's the wing. <laughs> so it yeah. just reminded me of when he was like, hey, watch the rib. It was just funny. So uh, what were your favorite things about this film, Matt? I love the cars. The sideways, the cars were <laughs> beautiful. Unrealistically so, but that's part of the... Uh, <laughs> of the plot, I guess. That's kind of a visual device that they use. I also, and this is really sideways as well, but I I like the fact that they kept it under two hours. It's uh, a big, (laughs) big pet hate of mine. I don't see any reason why any movie besides an epic should ever be above an hour 52 hours. And it kills me that Every other movie out there thinks it's got the right to be two hours 20, two hours 30. I think Aquaman was two hours and 40 minutes. I mean, come on. At the same time. rude. Very rude. At the same time, it's just any movie over two hours that is not an epic, it's got too much fat. It just does. And but at the same time, it was probably one of the problems here because it ended up being too 
jam-packed. So maybe this would have been one that if to succeed in the big themes you're trying to tackle, they would have needed a bit more time. Yeah, slow it down or the twists a little bit more slowly towards the end or maybe or just less twists or just be a little more, a little less ambitious with the, the grand themes and mm. bring it in under two hours as a whole thing. Very interesting. That would be mine. Jeff, what were your favorites? I really liked the setting. I liked the recreation of 1950s Detroit. I liked the sort of tension of racism that was involved in the movie. It sort of reminded me, and not not based on the story, well, I mean, sort of based on the story, it sort of reminded me of Quiz Show. You know, sort of the the deceitfulness that was sort of going on between this big television studio and the population, you know, it's sort of the same, you know, there's a comparison there between the catalytic converters and, and environmental uh, protection and that kind of thing. So, Super. yeah, I liked the, the historical parts of this movie a lot. Nice. And so every yin must hate a yang. So <laughs> with faves, we now have hangups. Jeff, I'll let you go first. Did you have any hangups? So, okay, yeah. My yang is the <laughs> the overuse of the fisheye lens. I think it was fine to bring it in, but I think to me it was distracting because it appeared in so many places. I liked it, and I like it even more after Matt's comment about the television set, the old-time television sets. But, yeah, I thought it was just overused, you know. Good point. I mean, minor. Matt, <laughs> hang-ups? Yeah, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying. I still like the, uh, I like it when they try, uh, somebody experiments, you know, and obviously sort of uh, yeah. does that a lot. He's done movies on iPhones and such, and it's it's interesting to see. But yeah, no, for me, it's, it would be, again, it's just too many twists. And But if I want to pick anything different that we haven't spoken about, I actually thought, <laughs> you know, of all the characters, I thought Ray Liotta was an autopilot. I didn't, mm. I didn't dig his performance too much, but he's a small part of the, a small component of it. Yeah. I feel like they just, again, a star-studded cast, like where almost every, even minor roles had to be played by somebody recognizable, which was a little strange. He also looks super different. Mm. I don't know if that's due to just aging or whatever procedures or whatever. Aging and or dealing with aging. (laughs) Yeah, good point. My hangups with this were that some parts of this screenplay just felt very contrived. You see these like kind of played out tropes, cowardly man having affair with coworker or just like man having affair with coworker. It's like so overplayed. It's been done. Then what else? You know, only after being abused or only after this something happens, woman takes revenge. And I just feel like I've seen this before, you know? And I looked. It's uh, the screenplay's written by a man. I don't know if that has anything to Ed do with Solomon. it. Yeah, I mean, he's written a lot of wonderful films, right? He wrote like Bill and Ted's yeah. Excellent Adventure and Men in Black and stuff. But I just, and, and also I looked at who edited this, and of course, all men. So I just, it's like, it's been done, it's played out. Can we have some different storylines or different attitudes? Or it's like, why is it only after they're treated like shit that they have to feel empowered? You know, it's it's odd. That was my main hang up with this. And then also the 50s language. I appreciate that they were trying to evoke um, maybe the colloquialisms of that day, but Again, without reading the subtitles to the films, and I watched everything with film, with subtitles, even TV shows um, in English, uh, <laughs> just so I, I don't know why, I just do it. But even with that, 
some of the words and the phrases were just very interesting. There's this one scene where Matt Damon says, like, the twain have met. I'm like, what the hell does that even mean? And he's like, I remember Goins, Don Cheadle's character, one day, he had to fish him out. And like, what are you talking about? It's just... What was that one? What was the last line? He had a what? There was one person, one line where he's talking to, I think it's Bill Duke's character. You had to pay him to fish me out. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who would say that? Does that... So when I'm listening to sometimes like screenplays and movies and TVs, I always think like, is this even realistic language? And that's what brought on my connection to True Detective. In season three, it just felt like none of that script was realistic. Someone could argue that the language and the attitudes that you don't like are of that time, though. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. It was just some of the strange language. But for me, I've seen a lot of classic films and I've never heard that particular phrase or, or, you know, not to say it didn't exist, but it was just interesting, you know, but they're trying to make a 50s movie, but for this era. So, wild card. This is when, you know... We get to talk about whatever else we haven't mentioned. So, Matt, did you have any sort of like last end of show wild card moments? Actually, uh, yeah, I have a little one. Just, just uh, we we spoke about all the characters, and we've gone back to how many big name actors are in here. Well, apparently George Clooney was attached to the movie originally, but couldn't make mm-hmm. it because of a family yeah. issue. So. That would have been another one, another big one. I wonder what role he would have done. But oh. uh, would we have liked to have seen George Clooney in this movie? Or we got enough with what's out there? I think the movie's I, fine as is. <laughs> I guess he may have yeah. done the Matt Damon role, maybe. Someone that can think of for him. Yeah. You know, or the actually, John Hamm, but that'd be too small for him. Yeah, I feel like if hmm. Clooney had played that detective role, it would have been even more of an underwritten Right, uh, right. Role for him. So, and linking onto the cop. But yeah, my only other little hang up was, you know, I know it's supposed to, we're supposed to believe that the car industry was all powerful and even the cops were in, in their payroll. But the fact that John Hamm's cop just goes to Matt Damon's character and hands him all the money that he picked up on the side and doesn't keep it for himself or his team. I thought it was a little unrealistic, but I'm not sure how much mm-hmm. I know about corruption at the, <laughs> in real life at these yeah. levels. But it was I weird. Know, unless we lived in 1950s Detroit. Right. <laughs> but it felt a little, a little weird. Yeah. My wild card was this, and this is the thing that's sort of been bugging me. So Vanessa Capelli. <laughs> what, there's something that bugged you? <laughs> there were some good points, but... Vanessa Capelli, his Frank's wife, in the end, she's she's with Russo, played by Benicio 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 del Toro, and like obviously there's a scene where she pulls the trigger on him and he he dies and she shoots him and shoots him in the head and and then it's like the next scene everything's fine and dandy and she's you know driving down the highway and the car is immaculate like it's spotless. And that's just not realistic. I have it's a theory. Like, I think on. she called she called Mr. Wolf's uh, grandfather, <laughs> yeah. well, who started right. the uh, the business. <laughs> as we in all Detroit. know from yeah, as we all know from Pulp Fiction and you know the laws of physics, there's no way that you could shoot. Spring cleaning extraordinary. Yeah, like he, that scene is just ridiculous to me. She would have had Good to point. spend like five hours cleaning up brains and blood from the car seat. I mean the. Car car seat is like immaculate like it's even when the cop pulls her over it's uh, i was just thinking like what'd she do with the body 
You know, like, wh- where's the brains? Where's the blood? Where's anything? It was so bizarre for me, Jeff. I think the car must have, they must have tried to do some kind of symbolism with shooting him inside the car because it'd be very easy for her to walk him to the edge of a lake or something and just <laughs> shoot him and push him in and, and drive off or something, you know. Mm, Let's have a picnic perhaps. over here or something. There must be a reason for it. <laughs> I don't know. Otherwise I'm just going to be the practical, yeah, I'm just going to be the practical persons, you know, here from my point of view. Okay. Jeff, any Last-minute wild card? Well, so you mentioned the bleakish ending in the notes, and so I was yeah. going to sort of think about that. You know, to me, the main theme that came through this movie is this contemplation on when enough is enough. And, you know, enough requires a certain restraint that capitalism doesn't seem to be capable of exercising uh, until it's required to by, you know, the higher powers that be, Right. And so, I don't know, it's like, there's no real, you know, it's it's this treadmill. And so I think that that's sort of, I think that's sort of the bleak ending, you know, it's, mm. it's this, uh, this system that, there's no price to the system that's creating the problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and, you, and you think it was, and, and it, you know, it was kind of, it was a bleak. It was a relatively bleak ending for for Goins because you know he could have gone. You know he, he deserved to take a lot of money out of doing all. Of he this was stuff. intelligent enough to. Yeah, right. he was intelligent enough to put the whole thing together and take the whole four hundred grand. But the system but, wins. Yeah, but but he, you know the way he's trying to do it, he's he's trying to. All he wants is freedom. You know, he just wants yeah. to be out of this crap. He wants his life back. He wants yeah. his life back, you know, he's, he's, uh, so that's his only goal, you know, is uh, he wants the five, the five grand that he was promised and that's it, which I looked up is roughly $50,000 in today's money. I looked up. Mm. The okay. Right Super interesting. But it is, but it I, yeah. is a year's salary probably. But it is, mm-hmm. it is, he does come across as greedy during the movie because you're thinking, why is he trying to get even more money and more money and more money? Exactly. But in the end, you find yeah. out that it's because he's got such a price on his head that the only way he can mm-hmm. possibly get out alive is if he gives as much money as possible to to the gangsters. Yeah. So it's not, it looks like greed and you're thinking, God, this guy's greedy. And in the end, you know, he just wants to a little piece of land away from a town where black neighborhoods are being leveled to build highways, yeah. you know, and Matt, mm-hmm. da- and Matt Damon wants more and more. Yeah, he's the yin to the yang of the Detroit car makers. Like he's the sort of the restraint, you know, the personal restraint that only like a person can exercise, but a corporation, you know, who's responsible. So yeah, it's kind of like this interesting balance, but it's a karmic treadmill, man, and you got to have it in order to have these experiences. So it's not that bleak because, you know, you can learn something from it as an individual. But, you know, that's why I think it's there. <laughs> so on that note, we've had a hearty discussion about no sudden move. So, Matt, stream it or leave it. Ooh, it's a tight one. It's a tight one. I think, <laughs> look, you know, you've got uh, you've got Steve Soderbergh with a fairly a mostly successful film on your streaming service. I think you probably should press play. But I would also say, if you're gonna watch a great heist movie, press play on Hell or High Water. Oh, love that film. <laughs> heist movie with with big themes that really works mm-hmm. in every level. So stream that first, and then you can go to No Sudden Moves. That's uh, Taylor Sheridan, who is one of my yeah, favorite. your boy Taylor. 
Oh, love him. Only because, <laughs> well, first of all, Chris Evans is, is not bad to look at through that whole film, Hell or High Water. But then also because I just love Taylor Sheridan because he writes Yellowstone. And so Hell or High Water is almost like an extension of Yellowstone, you know, in terms of like the pace and the plot. Mm. So, Well, he has a huge deal with one of the streamers and he's just pumping out a whole bunch of content now. He's cashing in in the streaming war. He's doing well for himself. Sweet. But, you know, good for him. Jeff, stream it or leave it? I, I, I'm i glad I streamed it. I think I would have gotten to it eventually, but it, <laughs> it, we're, we're not for this show, but I wouldn't have probably done it as soon as I did. Cool. Yeah, but I don't regret streaming it. <laughs> I don't regret streaming it. <laughs> I, do, I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> stream it or leave it? I don't regret streaming it. <laughs> Stream it or leave it for me. Uh, you know, for me, it should have been called like No Sudden Plot. Ooh, ouch. I don't know. Like, I would say the most significant contribution that it's made to my life is getting me to put this sort of 50s era hat on today and this putting this show in a fisheye lens. So I'm going to say the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say leave it. So before we wrap up, would love to hear what you guys are watching. You know, what else we've been watching? I know it's like the summertime and there's a lot that's on the streaming platforms right now. This was a big one on HBO Max, of course. So we've got some exciting things happening coming up, but I'm curious what you guys have been spending your time on. So Jeff, you want to go first? What have you been watching? Yeah, I think the most interesting one has been... The third season, the final season of Atypical, which is about mm. an autistic kid and the struggles around with their family around that. There was a long wait between season two and three, partly because of the pandemic. And I'm not sure what else was going on with Netflix, but I'm not enjoying season three as much as I did two, one and two. I think the characters, like the actors, maybe have been a, a little too far away from the role for too long. Cool. Matt, what else are you watching? I've started watching The White Lotus on HBO, mm -hmm. HBO Max, and that has Ooh. been really tasty. Mm. Tasty. It came in with a, yeah, it came in with a, a blaze of publicity and buzz. There's going to be this kind of tense, you know, grown-up huh. prestige thriller, and it looks stunning. The acting is great, and so far, and the plot is very. Uh, it's got it's got me hooked. It's been a really fun watch so far. There's been two episodes out, and I. Uh, yeah, I can't wait for it. And, it. and it drops the old-fashioned way because it comes out on HBO on Sundays. So it's nice to get this weekly dose. So that's been really cool so far. Without watching the previews for the next week, right? <laughs> always. Always. Oh, my God. Mm. I know. You told me to stop doing that. So I haven't seen either of those that you guys have been watching, Atypical nor White Lotus. But I'll definitely try to check them out now that they have your recommendation. I have been streaming An Unorthodox Life on Netflix, which is the a sort of a pseudo-reality show featuring another friend, the CEO <laughs> of Elite Modeling Group, Julia Hart. And so it's like about her life because she left an ultra-Orthodox community and she started this like fashion career and became creative director at La Perla at 43. So it's just fascinating. Mm. But it's also about her family too. So it's 10 episodes, super interesting, An Unorthodox Life, and also sex life, which um, may or may not be talked about in the future. <laughs> Stream it or leave it. So that is our show today. Thank you so much for sticking with us and talking about No Sudden Move. We will see you soon and have a wonderful day and weekend. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. 
That's our show. Are you not entertained? What did you think? Pretty, pretty good. Don't forget to subscribe and find, like, and follow us on social and on YouTube. We don't have faces for radio. Promise. You can't handle the truth. You can also find our show notes on Substack at Stream It or Leave It. See you next time, and thanks for tuning in.